Hey folks, thanks for tuning in for this episode here of the Brothers Trek About. Space Seed is this week. How exciting is that? Khan, Nuni, and Sung, boys and girls, we get to talk about it. But before we do, um, I do want to mention that there is some talk about sexual assault in this episode. And we do gloss over it pretty casually. Uh, mostly because uh, what Khan is doing here is like the worst manipulation in the most overtly gross way. I mean, I think I speak for my brother here when I say that uh, I've never thought that unwantedly touching a girl in any way is anything but inappropriate or illegal. I mean, pinching a waitress or uh, walking through a crowd at a festival and grabbing a lady, I mean, like, what even is that? Like, what is that doing for the guy? All of this to say is that I think that our glossing over of it in this episode is because it's so clearly wrong that we don't even need to, like, mention it, right? Like, this doesn't happen in the regular, on the Enterprise, in the Federation. It shouldn't happen in the real world. So the fact that we don't talk about it is because I think that the audience is supposed to be, supposed to be uh, skeeved and creeped out. Uh, and and prove further proof that what Khan is doing here uh, is working from a psychopathic instinct. It sucks that any of this needs to be even even to be said. And obviously, we uh, by no means approve or condone any of it. So enjoy the episode. I hope you think it's great. It's uh, a lot of fun. Ken thinks that this would have been three episodes, a three-episode arc had it been created today in the world of uh, serial television as opposed to back in the 60s when everything was episodic. So wait for that. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another big episode of the Brothers Trek about the original series. We are doing one of my favorite episodes today. Very excited about it. Uh, I mean, I can't even hold in my excitement. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is probably one of the most monumental episodes of the original series. An episode without which wouldn't have brought us one of my favorite Star Trek movies and also another show called Fantasy Island. So here today we are going to present to you Spacey, dun dun dun. And of course, as always, I can't be the lone brother in a show called The Brothers Trek About, so let's say hello to my brother and yours from Houston. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. Hey, there he is. All right, excellent. Well, like I said, Spacey's the name of the game today. Ken, how long has it been since you have watched this episode? It's been months. Months? I was expecting you to say years. It's been like 20 years for me since I've seen this episode. And you're like, nope, it's been a couple of months for me. That's cool. Well, you know, uh, Gypsy and I have been trying to watch Star Trek. Mm hmm And so uh -huh. I'm not exactly sure how many. Could be eight, could be 15, but yeah, it's not, it's not really years unless by years you might mean less than two. Right, right, right. No, that uh, no, that is fair. Like I said, it's probably been twenty for me. I know that I, uh, you know, it's one of those that, especially because of the movie, I revisit this episode. I've probably revisited this episode a lot often. And to be absolutely fair, it's probably been closer to ten years that I've uh, since I've seen this episode. I own the the DVD. It's like. That first collection that they came out with of the of the Star Trek show, I picked up. This is the one DVD I picked up because of you know, yeah, its connection to the movie. So There's had to get it. Something beautiful about the fact that you know in the '60s they make this TV show, and then the '80s they come back with the same cast, essentially Kirk and and Khan. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah tell their story 
many, many years later. I mean, it, they do the same thing with the Blade Runner. They come yep. back. And that's that's there's a certain attraction to that all by itself. Obviously, the new trilogy in, in Star Wars has a certain amount of that same yeah. cachet in which we get to see the characters later on. But I, I think that it really improves the the how cool it is that you get to, you could watch this TV episode and then you could watch the movie and it's clear that time has passed because everyone's that much older and yeah everyone looks different yeah and yet they're the same yeah absolutely I mean uh, we're not there yet but you know like I said crossing through flipping through TV channels late at night I'll hit you know BBC America or I. They're doing it, and then so is um, Heroes and Icons is a new TV channel that's on, and they're showing Star Trek as well. And so you'll hit these, like, season three episodes, and you're like, well, that looks like William Shatner from the movie or, you know, yeah. <laughs> from the motion picture or from, uh, you know, T.J. Hooker or whatever. You're like, okay, that's the Shatner I know. It's weird to see this, like, 1960s Kirk version of him as well. Yeah. Yeah, right, well, let's talk about some of the fun behind-the-scenes stuff, as always we do in these uh, original series episodes. The original draft of this was by a guy, na guy named Kerry Wilbur. Uh, to him, science fiction shows were interchangeable. He felt that they were uh, very similar in some ways. Uh, he worked on a, a, a show called Captain Video that I had never heard of. Uh, and then also in uh, he worked uh, in the opening uh, season's episodes of Lost in Space both of which were the uh, popular idea of people being transported in space while uh, in suspended animation, you know, while, while being frozen. So here's this idea he's already used two or three times, and he's like, well, let's do it again. But this time we'll use criminals, and it'll be different. So uh, that's how uh, the Botany Bay was created. But interesting note about the Botany Bay, by the way, contrary to popular belief, writes Mark Cushman, uh, that uh, uh, there never was a penal colony called Botany Bay in in uh, okay. Australia. Yeah, and then it was actually like Fort Jackson or something that was actually the uh, the first penal colony there in in Australia. So there's an interesting piece of knowledge for you, a little trivia you can toss around to all of your friends. Uh, so for his story, Wilbur uh, chose the name Harold Erickson. Right, you know, describing him as a Nordic Superman. Right. Uh, so, you know, we got like the Leif Erikson uh, comparison there. And also, uh, Marla McGivers was a uh, second communications officer. Uh, and in this first draft, we do get, you know, she falls for Erikson and helps him revive the rest of the convicts on the uh, sleeper ship so that they can commandeer the Enterprise. They do another draft. Uh, there were the scene, the show was just running too long. There was like 66 pages, which, you know, in most TV shows, it's a minute a page. So that was long. Also, uh, people behind the scenes felt that uh, the dialogue and the actions that happened didn't sound like our heroes, you know. And even back then, everyone started questioning, uh, you know, MacGyver's motivations. Like, oh, yeah, would a yeah. woman really do this and blah, blah, blah. Even in the show, we get this, which we'll talk about, but. It's, Go ahead. It's, I thought you were going to say more. It's one of the central. Uh, there's two central problems in the the story, right? One mm -hmm. is MacGyver's helping Khan, right? And the second one is Kirk letting him read the technical manuals. <laughs> yes. And both of them are because this really needs to be a three episode arc. Uh huh. They, they they should in episode one find Khan, think that he was just uh, you know the leader of this you know early colonization effort, and they think he's cool and he's and they're nice and they're kind of impressed by him and everyone likes him, and they let him wander around the ship, not necessarily give him technical manuals, but give him access <laughs> yes, to exactly. the ship, right? And he's able to figure things out. And he's got his eye on things, and he's and. You know, we should have the sense as the audience by the end of that episode that there's a little bit more to him than meets the eye. And, you know, maybe we're feeling he's a little too Lorca-ish or, you know, what have you. <laughs> yeah. But not so much that we're like, 
oh my god, I can't believe they're giving this guy the technical manual. They don't even know who he is. Yeah. And then in episode two, you know, he would basically be turning the MacGyver's character, you know, on, on many levels, right? Ideologically, um, you know, appealing to, you know, things where she feels like, I, I, like, let's say she's a communication officer. I can't move ahead because of her, uh, you know, and I'm thwarted here. And I really wish that it was a place I could, my ambition could flower. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And then there's some more motivation. Right. You, 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 by the end of the second episode, you'd be like, oh my God, you know, she's, she's on his side, you know? Yeah. And by this time we'd realize that, that by the end of that second episode, you realize, oh, he's a bad guy. You know, he wants to take over the ship, which is kind of where we were by the end of the second act. Yeah. And then uh, the third act would be the struggle to, you know, control the enterprise and so forth. And by the, by then you ideally, you'd feel like everyone's motivations made sense. And because this is condensed into an hour, you know, even a 1960s hour, which is what, 52 minutes or whatever. Yeah. It feels like these two things have to happen because we just can't work all this plot into a single hour. Yeah, so we exactly. Just have to accept that she's going to help him and that he's going to know an awful lot about how to steal the ship from Kirk. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, as I was reading through the book, that there are a couple of uh, scenes that didn't even make it into the episode. And so we get, uh, you know, some stuff that, again, would have helped fill in a little more of yeah. these things. But uh, yeah, yeah, you just yeah, they just ran out of time. Exactly. If they had done a longer arc, you know, you could imagine, you know, they're on, on the way from here to there and they have an adventure and Khan turns out to be helpful and he helps the crew and he proves to be useful and everyone likes him. You know, that would even make it harder. Right. Yeah. Of course, there'd always be a certain amount of malevolence, a certain Lorca-nish to it, uh, Lorca-nish to him, so that you know when when he does turn, you're not like, oh, wait a minute, he was totally a good guy. What happened? Yeah, right? We were on his side. Yeah. Felt bad for him in his time traveling. So it was actually uh, Roddenberry who decided to uh, turn them into uh, supermen as opposed to common criminals. Uh, after his, after the second draft that uh, Wilbur did, he decided, uh, well, wouldn't it make it for much more interesting, you know, uh, developments in the script if instead of them being just common criminals, you know, suddenly they're these superior beings that are really going to make, you know, trouble for Kirk and the gang. So uh, as, as Cushman writes it, I like this quote here, uh, as he had done so many times before in one memo, or in this instance, two paragraphs, Roddenberry completely reinvented the story from something that might have worked. But uh, he's only gone on to make it better. So uh, after the th so on the third draft now, then Kuhn decides he's going to, uh, you know, take a stab at it. So he does and he writes the third script, but then he never shows it to anybody and he sleeps on it. And then two nights later, he writes another copy of the script. And then he doesn't and then he doesn't show anybody that one. And then two days later writes, you know, a tighter, cheaper, sharper version of the script. So uh, it's really, uh, really interesting because then what happens is that Roddenberry then takes the script and in 24 hours, you know, changes things. Like in this case, you know, Erickson finally becomes Khan and uh, right. all of these things. So, so that's interesting. So, of course, uh, they needed a director. So who do they bring on? But everyone's favorite, Mark Daniels. Uh, after his crowning success of uh, the uh, the menagerie, he returned for already his sixth episode. <laughs> Robert Justman, the producer, uh, said of Mark, oh, of Mark Daniels, that uh, during a drought you pay for rain, and during the first year of Star Trek you pray for Mark Daniels, because he's going to get it in on time, and uh, you know under budget. So let's talk a little bit about Ricardo Montalban at this point. Uh, he was everyone's first choice to play Con, and he was already a star. He was 45 years old already at this point, if you can believe that, and had top billing in films since 1947. On the stage in 1958, uh, a show called Jamaica, he was nominated for a Tony Award as Best Actor in a Musical, which is interesting. I can't even imagine Montalban singing, but guess that was the thing. And of course, uh, Roddenberry had already worked with him before as well. So that's also really exciting. 
so yeah, they brought him on and we're like, boom, let's do this. We're super excited. Uh, again, uh, the casting director says this, that Ricardo was one of the those few people we all everyone knew in Hollywood. And because he was already a movie star and just beginning to, to, tel- to do television, we scored uh, with a high caliber actor uh, higher than we expected. Then we got Madeline Rue here who plays uh, Marla McGivers. She was also a well-known TV guest star, had been in television since 1957, and would work with Montalban on three different occasions. Uh, first in 1960 in an episode of Bonanza, uh, then obviously in this episode, and then in 1982, she too did an episode of Fantasy Island. How exciting. Also here we see uh, John Winston turn in his uh, second of 11 turns as Lieutenant Kyle when he's knocked out <laughs> by Khan and held at gunpoint by uh, MacGyver's. James Doohan and his Scotty continue to gain stature here. NBC was pleased with Doohan and his character as the producers uh, uh, were all looking to in ways to involve Scotty more and more in this episode. And we see here that he even gets so special that he gets one of their super cool, uh, you know. Uh, dress uniforms. Dress uniforms. Thank you. Perfect answer. Great. Perfect. There we go. That's it. That's all my behind the scenes stuff there. Uh, anything else you need to talk about? Yeah, so I think, you know, lurking back here is the eugenics in a movement of the early 20th century. So, Mm -hmm. you know, eugenics comes out of, you know, it's got philosophical origins and, and kind of scientific, you know, stuff going back into the 19th century. And it just becomes more and more popular. And when you look at early 20th century people, it's like they're all eugenicists. Yeah. Right? And for a lot of them, it's connected to their racism because in the early 20th century, you just, you know, it's you find that more places than you'd like to find it. Mm-hmm. But everybody seems to be a eugenicist. Even if there's not a racial component, they still think that we need to improve the, the human race scientifically by selective breeding. And this might mean um, preventing the poor from having children or you know, actually trying to match the best of the species together and, and you know, move things along scientifically the way that we do with, with farm animals. Yeah. And it's really not until the Nazis give eugenics such a bad name that everyone, like, would, then nobody's a eugenicist and nobody ever was a eugenicist, right? <laughs> Except for the Nazis. Right. And so the whole thing is, is dropped as an idea that's so abhorrent. It became, it's toxic, right? So mm-hmm. when they're writing this, the idea of, of a return of eugenics in a sense is a kind of, you know, what if the Nazis had won, which is why when they start off with Ericsson, they kind of had to make, it would have been like too obvious. Yeah. Too, too oh, Nazi if they had stuck with a, you know, a Nordic guy. Right. Yeah. So in one sense, what they do is they go find the other Aryans, the real Aryans, right. Who invaded India, you know, a, a thousand BC and, and uh, bring us kind of Indian culture. Yeah. So you also have this cast. Khan's group of people is just as diverse as the Enterprise is. It's global. They're from all over. Yeah. And so in this sense, it's another way of distinguishing them from the Nazis, right? This isn't a racially superior, you know, eugenic group. These were people who were bioengineered to be superior and in that sense it probably they probably took the best specimens from the globe and then improved them genetically or you know however they did it and you get khan's group of people khan's group of supermen and presumably there were because khan was just one of the dictators there were other groups at other places Mm -hmm. so in one sense it's kind of a disturbing mirror of the ship in that they're this ethnically diverse, uh, you know, group of humans. But in this other sense, they're horribly tainted by the fact that they're eugenics. 
And not only does that have this kind of, you know, 1940s, you know, Nazi kind of connotation to it, especially to an audience watching this in, in the 60s. But there's this lurking hostility towards any kind of transhumanism in Star Trek. And so any kind of transhumanism that you can think of, genetic modification, um, cyborg augmentation, yeah, all of it, they're the monstrous enemies of the Federation. It's the Borg, <laughs> it's, you know, Khan. We, you know, we're all about human flourishing in Star Trek, not about human augmentation. Right, exactly. Well, it's also funny in this episode, too, speaking of the... Um the uh diversity amongst the people in this episode is that so you have khan nuni and singh right this indian warlord the sikh and yet there is this indian um uh, uh crewman who we have never seen before and gets no lines in this episode and yet he's there a lot just to sort of like put the kibosh on like, oh, well, what are you trying to say? It's like, no, we got an Indian over here. He's good. Everything's fine. We don't have to worry about, see, he's good. We got one bad, one good. We're good. We're good. Even though, again, he doesn't say anything. So, yeah. All right. Well, on that blockbuster, let's get to it. Captain's log. Stardate. It's five-year mission. So uh, we open up and we're right in the middle of something, you know. We find that they have uh, they have already scanned and found that there's a ship out there. They don't know what kind of ship it is. Uh, that was a problem with one of the early drafts that Wilbur had written was is that they took the whole teaser to find the ship. You know, it doesn't really put the the crew in danger. So then, you know, Justin was like, "What are we doing? Can't we just skip this? You know, <laughs> let's get to the part where they find it," which is ultimately what they did. Uh, <clears throat> Spock says, of course, that, you know, uh, well, nothing, no Earth ship could possibly have gotten this far. But then Uhura confirms it by, uh, you know, hearing the Morse code. <laughs> uh, to which, you know, Kirk gives him a little gentle ribbing about it, like, oh, and I thought you said it couldn't possibly be an Earth ship. <laughs> and uh, Spock goes, I don't know why, why you find such happiness in finding that I'm wrong. Sorry, it's an emotional Earth weakness of mine, he says. So they find the ship. It's a DY-100, and uh, this ship hasn't uh, was built back in the 1990s, all the way back in the 90s. Uh, <laughs> funny how that Trek timeline has fallen so far. Spock postulates that that doesn't mean that there are you know humans on board. Aliens could have taken over the ship, he says. Kirk checks the weapons. Yeah, right, exactly, the back lids. Uh, Kirk checks the, we the weapon status, making sure that uh, we're good to go in case. Uh, Bones finds that there are heartbeats detected, but they are too slow and faint to be human. Spock finds there's machinery at work. Dun, dun, dun. And we go to credits on that nothingness. Uh, so boom, yeah, we're back. We find out the ship is called the Botany Bay. We find out a little bit about uh, World War Three. We find the the first little bit. We get our first little oh, bit of exposition really here. Well, that's true. World War Three is something else. In yeah, I guess that's when the yeah yeah that's when the the actual. But he says this is like the last of your world wars, the beginning yeah. of your last world wars or something. So we, yeah, we got our first little bit of exposition here about the Eugenics War, and then uh, we also find out that we have a historian on board. And uh, she's going to beam over with the rest of the group. She knows a lot about the late uh, 20th century, apparently. And her name is MacGyver. So hopefully she knows a lot about uh, TV as well from the 20th century. Uh, so here we meet MacGyvers in her actual quarters. And there are uh, statues and paintings of uh, from Roman times, Roman centurions that she's painting. There's also a, uh, a statue of Caesar sitting there. So uh, this is one of... Go they, ahead. Had a, they had a choice in how to depict their historian, right? Right. So they could have gone with social scientist, which would have made a lot more sense for the crew, right? In which case she'd probably also be, you know, part-time archeologist, you know, uh, exo-historian, um, you know, someone right. who could 
probably handle some data, you know, uh, examine artifacts as well as know the past. But instead, they went with a more humanistic um, historian, someone who's not not just not scientific, but also in the sense that the arts and letters are, you know, one big branch of the university. She's there in the arts. She's painting, reading. Yep. She, she's probably reading some poetry. Yeah. There's some Shakespeare in there, some original yeah. Sophocles. Right. So she's much more of the humanist type of, uh, of humanities branch of history rather than the social scientist. Yeah. Well, so there was, this is one of the uh, cutscenes I was telling you about before. There's a scene just before we go into her, her, her room here where um, Kuman Martin, who we know from Balance of Terror and Shirley, right? She's the one who lost her husband. Uh, Martin tells McGivers that uh, there's a crewman who's interested in asking her out. But, Mac, uh, but MacGyver says um, that uh, she is not interested in any man who doesn't have the spine to do the asking himself. You know, so it kind of starts to lead you into a little bit of, you know, yeah. why she later falls for, um, falls for, uh, you know, Khan in the end. But right. still so not great. It's but it funny. Helps. You know, so they, they talk about how, you know, men of the 20th century were, you know, bolder and what. And yet yeah. the 60s men depicted in the Enterprise are in many ways more, uh, you know, mid 20th century uh, madmen in that sense yeah. right? than guys even of the 90s, let alone the current era would be. Yes, exactly. Speaking of Mad Men, I just watched, like, I couldn't sleep one night, so I was out here, and I was flipping through and caught one episode, and I, A, forgot how great that show is, right? Uh, yeah. The show's amazing. And then I realized it was like they were heading into the last four episodes, so I just recorded them all and was like, I'm going to watch these last four episodes again because this show's so great. I need to go back and just do a complete rewatch of that sometime. Mm -hmm. So uh, Scott and MacGyver are called uh, to the uh, transporter room. They end up beaming over, uh, but not before we get the shot of somebody sort of dressed like a go-go girl in stasis. She has that weird, like, 60s mesh thingy going yeah. on. Uh, so we find out that uh, the use of the, of the uh, stasis fields to travel from one place to another uh was used all the way up until 2018 uh but by then that they were able to travel from star to star so i guess they got seven months left to figure that out here in the real world <laughs> uh scotty turns on the lights but this also starts to revitalize one of the kiosks probably the leader they surmise but suddenly things start going wrong the lights start flashing inside there his is his his heartbeat starts it's funny by the way how much time mccoy I mean, script-wise, how much time McCoy spends, like, watching his his beats go up and then watching his beats go down. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, let's, there's, like, 30 seconds we could have cut right there. But anyway, um, well, so I finally says, Kirk's, like... It says something ahead. about, like, how fast they could do pacing. Yeah. Right? I mean, now that we're all basically post-24, you know, you could, yeah. you could cut basically all scenes, you know, in half at least. Yeah. Because he would just look at the thing going, his heart's erratic. We need to act, you know, quickly. It's, you know, yeah. use, use modern hospital drama talk and boom, he's up and he's around. And you, yeah. You well, we've got on. another great example of that coming right up here, by the way. So, you know, Kirk's like, uh, well, what happens if we just get him out of there? And uh, Bones is like, well, he'll die in seconds if we don't. So meanwhile, they're debating this as opposed to just acting, right? Right, right. But then, on top of it, we cut to each person gets a reaction shot, you know? <laughs> we go to MacGyver, Scotty, Bones, Kirk. And then they go. <laughs> and then they decide, that, oh, well, well, now we should pull him out of there. That's totally happened now. Uh, so funny. So then they, uh, they, uh, they get him out of there. You know what they really needed there? was a, a flashback scene. 
Yes, one more scene of like them, uh, even 30 seconds ago, like, oh, remember 30 seconds ago? Didn't get him out of there. So uh, then the the leader quokes, you know, croaks out, uh, how long has it been? And uh, Kirk tells him, and then just before we go to commercial, we cut to MacGyver again, who is who says, how magnificent, just staring at him. Mm-hmm. Go to commercial. So... We've had like this entire scene of like MacGyver becoming transfixed, you know, with Khan. She's like yeah. staring at him. She's looking at him. We cut to all of these like reaction shots of her, which again, you know, they sell part of it as of her intense curiosity, you know, about the 20th right. century. There's, you know, even Spock says they don't have a lot of information about the 90s, although later then they find plenty of it, but that's beside the point. But, you know, <laughs> I also equated this to like uh you know a role-playing thing where he probably has a charisma of like 20 you know what right, i mean yeah, it's yeah. like it's off the charts every role you know he makes every role in seduction he makes uh, every role in charm and at this point he's not even awake and he's still you know, succeeding in all of those roles right when it comes to her which is why i think it would be so much better if they gave a full episode to khan winning over not only the crew but the audience Right. So that instead of stating that he's got an amazing charisma, we would see he's got an amazing charisma. Yeah, we would absolutely. Feel it. Yep. And certainly an actor like, you know, Montalban could have pulled that off in an hour. Yeah. That would have been, you know, a little, little bit of writing and boom, he just exudes the charm and we're all like, wow, he's great. We like this guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's so charming. And, you know, it's funny, too, because he never really, especially to the guys, he never comes across quite charming, does he? I mean, you know, even in that first scene where he's like, where he meets Kirk, he just, you know, pretends to be fatigued and he goes back, you know. It's just like, we don't see any of that. And then, you know, like the next scene we see, we see one scene with them and he's just like pawing at her and like letting her hair down that whole scene and then the next time we see her you know he's got her on her knees you know like crushing her hand you're just like jeez why is this guy you know winning her over at all right right yeah there's yeah. you you almost feel that there's something broken about her that right she yeah, exactly it, that she wouldn't like warning bells wouldn't be going off that this guy is no good yeah exactly well um so back from the commercial, back at it, Bones uh, is amazed at the physical prowess of the leader. A lesser man would have died already, probably. We hear about uh, their ship. Kirk, Kirk and Spock are talking about it. Nuclear propulsion, again, you know, similar to what we heard in earlier uh, episodes about the Enterprise itself. Uh, Kirk and Bones try to discover anything they can about Botany Bay. Kirk remembers in the past that Bo- Botany Bay was a penal colony in Australia, which we've already talked about, isn't true. Uh, but it's, I also put put this like that's just weird information to have at your fingertips. Like, why does like Kirk have that, you know, in his memory banks? Only because he needs it, I guess. At this point, convenient almost. I wrote. Kirk is concerned that perhaps these folks are a danger to the ship, but Spock feels that this is an illogical leap. However, he doesn't have enough facts to make any kind of theory, which means, as Spock says, insufficient facts always lead to danger. Well, okay, thanks for coming around on that one, Spock. Appreciate it. <laughs> in sickbay, Kirk uh, uh, Kirk now realizes that this leader is probably one of the eugenics once uh, Bones tells him about how, you know, quickly he uh, recovered. Uh, meanwhile, MacGyver walks in as smitten as ever. Kirk pulls her aside to rate her performance on that, uh, uh, that away team. The fate of the entire crew could, could rest on the act, acting of one crew member. Uh, she assures her that her interest. Uh, she assures him that her interest is only uh, professional curiosity. Though uh, Kirk reminds her that men were more bold in the nineties. Bones basically says, "Well, that was well handled. Uh, you know, you could have made a fair psychologist." To which Kirk replies, "A fair psychologist." <laughs> uh, then the leader wakes up. And he does some kind of yoga or something. I don't know what he's doing there. And then uh, he picks up a scalpel and then pretends to be asleep when Bones walks in. He then pulls the knife on McCoy, who responds with, well, either choke me or cut my throat. Make up your mind. <laughs> I like a brave man, says says the leader. 
Bones calls Kirk down, saying that the uh, he is awakened. But leaving out the homicidal part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, don't worry. We don't need any guards in here to keep an eye on him. It's uh, He's apparently fine. I've won him over with my charm, Bones says. And, and uh, I, my knowledge of anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so Kirk asks him his name. But uh, but uh, the man insists on answers first. Where are we headed, he asks. Starbase 12? Is that going to help you? Asks Kirk. <laughs> Does that mean anything to you? Uh, the leader asks to be uh, asked for his people to revive, but Kirk tells him not until we reach Starbase 12. And then he finally reveals his name. It's Khan. As Kirk starts to ask more questions, Khan's decides he's too fatigued to continue. And he does a waving gesture here that uh, we get to see again in the movie, which I was really excited about. I'm like, oh, we pulled that out again. Nice. Uh, Kirk tries to continue, but Bones then agrees that later might be better. But apparently now, Khan has plenty of time to read all the specs on the ship. So we were talking about that a little earlier, and I was thinking to myself, shouldn't this be like classified information? Like, isn't there a next generation thing where like somebody takes over Riker's body and he tries to get information out of the computer, but he can't because he doesn't know the passcode? I mean, like that should be like totally restricted information, don't you think? Yeah, which is why it would be better. I mean, they had to do it because they had to tell the audience he's going to be able to do things like block off the turbo lifts and shut down yeah. the intruder alert system and do this kind of stuff. But it would just feel much better as the audience if the way he figured this stuff out is that things would happen and he would see the crew's response and he would learn something about the yeah. ship. Because even in this next scene, we've got Spock like keeping an eye on what he's looking at. You know what I mean? Right, right. Nobody's suspicious at all. He's like, well, he's really devouring those technical manuals. I'm like, should we stop him or something? Should we, should we be giving him all this information? Uh, whatever. Boy, he seems really interested in, that, in how to set the warp core into a bomb mode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And wow, he really is interested in all those intruder protocols, which yeah, he later yeah. knows how to like stop. He hasn't read, read anything on the replicators or how to synthesize food or... <laughs> anything important that he might actually need. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's also funny here, because I've thought about this before and yet to mention it, you know, in the 23 episodes it's been since we've been watching, is that, you know, you got uh, Nimoy is always looking into that little, like, viewfinder there. Right, right. And they got that blue light constantly shining up into his eyes. Like, that's got to be bad. <laughs> it's got to be some sort of damaging. It can't be good for him just to be constantly staring into that blue light all the time. Well, you know, that's, that's what they say about the kids these days. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Looking right into those, uh, looking right into those phones. So here, uh, Kirk and Spock now decide that, hey, they could be part of that superior race. Uh, we find out even more now about the eugenics war. Forty of them seized power in 40 different cities at the same time. Uh, but then infighting broke out between them all. As Spock tells us, superior ability breeds superior ambition. And then we find that 80 to 90 of these supermen were unaccounted for. Kirk says, how is this possible? And Spock says, would you like to tell a bunch of Don Trout and Purple that there are still 80 or 90 supermen unaccounted for? So uh, MacGyver makes her way back down to talk to Khan, and he instantly is trying to seduce her again, calling her pretty, telling her to take her hair down, then, like, physically taking her hair down and then, like, pawing her neck and touching it. Uh, she attempts to leave, but then he grabs her roughly by the arm and then says... I'm glad you came. <laughs> like, okay, cool. You're gonna that's how you're gonna follow up a grab to the arm. I'm glad you came. We then go to the formal dining room with everyone in their formal dress uniforms, including Scotty, like I said. Interesting uh, to look at all the badges too that everybody's wearing. Kirk has like ten of those little triangles on him. Bones has four, Spock has like seven or something. He then also asks uh, Bones about MacGyver's feelings towards Khan. Bones says uh, that he does have quite a magnetism, and that could override hers, especially with her preoccupation with men from the past. Cut to her quarters, where Khan has entered, hoping to be escorted to dinner. 
Uh, he even mentions to her uh, how she uh, changed her hair for him. He starts petting her again and then looks around the room uh, and then, uh, you know, sees the Leif Erikson, sees Genghis Khan, sees Caesar, and then finds a picture of himself dressed as a sheik or as a Sikh or a sheik, either one. Be cautious, though, he says to her, such men take what they want and then kisses her. And then we get a weird, this is, this is a totally technical thing, and I'd just like to mention it, is that, is that this is one of the few times where we fade to black without going to a commercial. You know, and it's interesting because the fade to black can be used for different things. Uh, you know, it's, it feels, sometimes it's used as an ending. Sometimes, which I think like here, it's used just to say, and then time passes. Or, because next thing, or hit me. There are things happening we don't show on television. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair, fair, especially in the 60s. But we do find ourselves later now in the middle of the dinner. You know, uh, he's wearing a shirt. <laughs> I'm dumb sometimes. But his, his shirt, the yellow one that he's wearing, looks like a pair of Umbro shorts, you know, that were popular in the 90s. Thought that. I was like, so, you know, they did get that part correct, at least. Knew what people were wearing in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, but we are in the middle of dinner. Spock begins to poke and prod about the era in which Khan is from. Khan insists that one man could have ruled like Caesar over the Roman Empire. Spock keeps poking and prodding, but Khan cuts it short, calling Kirk an excellent tactician. You let go number two attack while you search for weaknesses. <laughs> but Kirk assures him, no, no, this is just a social occasion. To which Khan responds, it has been said that social occasions are warfare concealed. Dun, dun, dun. So he he's, is so belligerent so often. Yes. Right? Pull, you know, yes. he, he pulls a knife on his doctor. He basically is saying, we're in combat. We are opponents. We must fight, you know, during yeah. this dinner. And you should, everyone's alarm bell should be going off, right? Yeah. That, uh, uh-oh, this is a guy we got to constrain. This is a guy who is belligerent, who's hostile. And everyone's just kind of like, well, you know, it was the 90s. <laughs> Things were different then. They were bolder. Yeah. They took what they wanted. Exactly. It's okay. We can't judge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so uh, Khan responds with uh, to Kirk's message by saying, uh, it has been said that social occasions are warfare concealed. Oh, I said that already. But Kirk continues and he says, but you fled when the world needed courage the most. And then Khan slams his hand down. We offered the world order. We, says Kirk. <laughs> oh, very nice, says Khan. I like this bit, you know, this is the, there's yeah. such good writing here in the dialogue. We see the two trying to, you know, outthink each other. Kirk pulling all of his moves. Khan almost outthinking him all the time, you know, seeing what's really going on until he is actually then caught, you know, having trouble seeing through his ruse, Kirk's ruse. So, you know, again, uh, in, the, in the longer version that I imagine, right? Yes, exactly. In the better version. Right. You know, Khan could have learned, instead of just reading the technical manuals about how to, how to put a, a wrench in the turbo lift, he also would have learned how to talk like a 23rd century person, right? Mm -hmm. So he could express the values. And, and what would happen is that you'd have these longer conversations in which Kirk could throw him off his game and, and in a sense, you know, look behind the curtain and get him to say stuff like this. But instead of a conversation in which it's like, I am your enemy, I'm going to defeat you. I'm going to crush you. I'm going to take what I want. Instead, it's like, oh, I believe in, in peace and diversity and nice things, but I take what I want. Um, no, no. I, what I mean to say is that, you know, <laughs> I really admire the, the progress, the social progress and all the, the ways that we have advanced so much. I really admire it. But we gave the world order. I mean to say, you know, those times <laughs> where yeah. you see these slips and they would make the crew go, wait a minute. You know, there's, there's some inconsistencies here, and I, 
is it possible this guy's one of the eugenicists? Because, of course, he'd have some story about how they were colonists escaping the eugenics wars. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it was terrible. It was bad. It was awful. We had to get away from that place. But we gave the world order! <laughs> exactly, exactly. So here, uh, Khan decides, he asks to be excused again and uh, grows fatigued again and walks out. <laughs> uh, back in his quarters, uh, he's a little bit miffed. You could tell that he's like mad that he like fell for something. Uh, in his quarters, MacGyver shows up and she apologizes. Uh, he then goes to kiss her and she pulls away. And so he like throws her away and says, stay or go, but do it because it is what you wish to do. <laughs> it's funny too because his like serious Corinthian accent <laughs> comes out here. You know, it's hardly Indian like he's right, supposed right. to be, but eh, it's fine. Then, uh, and then he's like, "Now you must ask me to stay," which she does. And then he takes her hand, and it's like really soft for a moment. And then he starts to crush it, and she ends up on her knees. And then he asks her to open her heart for him. And then you know, it's like. Okay, we know he's supposed to be a villain, but come on here, people. Super manipulating. Uh, <laughs> and I wrote, and people thought Kylo and Ray's relationship was messed up. Uh, <laughs> it just goes far beyond that. And then he pretty much says, I need your help in taking over the ship. And Which, you would have go to ahead. any Starfleet officer would be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, 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 when this... <laughs> she at least does say you're not going to hurt anybody, to, are you? Yeah. And then he's like, you doubt me. And then, uh, but then she's like, okay, I'll help you. Dun, dun, dun. We go to commercial. You know, it's funny, actually, that I think about it. Because if we think, especially in Next Generation, how Roddenberry never wanted, like, there to be friction amongst the, you know, the crew. To actually have somebody in Starfleet who would be so crazy as to, you know, yeah. go through with this. It's really interesting that he even let it happen, even though I guess he wrote a draft of it. Well, and I, mean, I think part of it is he hadn't yet formulated the... It's, it's in hindsight. You know, you watch yeah. the episode in 1973, and you're like, the Starfleet person have done that? That so, makes no sense. And you, you know, evolve your theory of, like, how people are in the, in the 23rd yeah. century. Well, and, too, you know, it sort of fits in with the whole discovery thing, right? Of, like, we're only kind of finding our way into what it means to be a part of the Federation. You know what I mean? And so, yes, probably by the 24th century, people aren't, you know, just giving up their, you know, giving up the ships because some hot person comes on, comes aboard. So uh, that's probably, you know, we can at least say that's part of it as well. Back from commercial, we find that... They have found data on Khan. We find out his full name, Khan Noonien Singh. And from 92 to 96, he was absolute ruler of one third of the entire earth. The guys start talking about like, hey, you know, it's pretty impressive that he was able to do all of that stuff. And Spock is like dismayed by it. He's like, I, I don't understand how you can, you know, even think about like what a good thing this is. To which, you know, Kirk replies, well, we all have a barbarous streak in us, Mr. Spock. We can both appreciate and hate the man. Uh, then we get another great interrogation scene here well, between... So oh, that scene in which they're, they're admiring Khan, right? Yeah. In one sense, it gets across what's going on, right? In another sense, it feels awkward that, like... Like... If it's, a, if it's barbarous, if that's what's going on, if that's who Khan is... They should have been much more alerted to it, right? Right. I, I feel like Khan should be much more seductive than barbarous. Yeah. If if everyone's not going to be like, oh, you're awful, we need to lock you up, not <laughs> invite you to dinner. Yes. In that sense, he needs to be more vampire than, you know, with the... Werewolf? Yeah, right, exactly. There you go. And so instead of being aggressive and hostile, he should be seductive and and using people's you know stuff against them, like their ambition, their desire to move up, their desire to you know see their idealism in a sense, right? Right. And we 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 just don't have a sense of of that because in an hour there's only so much you can do, and right. Instead, they take these shortcuts. 
So here we have the scene with it, where the men get to admire Khan in the same way that we've kind of been establishing that MacGyver's admires Khan. Yeah. But, you know, again, if we'd stretch this out and, you know, that they talked a lot and was it the last or the second to the last after Trek about how much side eye there was in discovery, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you needed in this episode in which over the, the course of two or three episodes, people could say admiring things about Khan and Spock could give him the side eye. Like what the hell's going on here? Yeah. You know, uh, Starfleet regulations prohibit this kind of behavior. And because it was successful and because he maybe saved Crewman Jones, you know, you're you're approving of it. Yeah. And then you, you, the, the cast would then be on the defensive where they'd have to say, well, no, no, I mean, what he did was wrong. But, you know, guys back in the day, were, you know, they were bolder and they were, you know, you'd make that <laughs> argument, right? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, we, we got to tell him it's wrong. And then you tell him and he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize, you know, uh, you know, whatever. But he's got that Lorcanness to him, right? That willingness. Yeah. To, that's what we saw in Lorca, this willingness to break the rules and, and go just, you know, a step beyond what was acceptable. And in the same way, you know, he'd be on the borderline of acceptability, crossing over sometimes. And then when you call him on, he's like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't mean to be bad. Mm hmm. And he'd suck you in. But then, of course, when it times for him to really vet, you're like, oh, my God, look at that. There it is. As opposed to, <laughs> we knew it was coming. To, yeah. As opposed to, like, <laughs> if you found out that it was Tilly who was actually the, <laughs> the bad one. <laughs> so, so you know, okay. We're, we're, I th well, let's point out at this point that there is no Sulu. Sulu's not in this episode. We had a different He was written in this episode, but he was not there. We had a, a different guy, you know, in his station the whole episode. And yep. Chekhov isn't even on the series yet. <laughs> yes. But presumably, Khan recognizes him and he recognizes Khan. So in theory, he must be in the lower decks or... Yeah, he hasn't made it to the bridge yet. He hasn't made it to the bridge, but he's there. So we've got these two key characters from the series as a whole, but also from Star Trek Two, yeah. who just aren't in the episode. That's true. That's a good point. So we get this, uh, oh, so uh, luckily, as you said, they have at this point now put a guard on his door and locked his door so he can't get out. Mm -hmm. uh, we get another great scene here with Khan and Kirk. Uh, you know, uh, Khan says, how little uh, man himself has changed over the years. It appears that we will do well in your century. Well, Kirk doesn't like that, so he leaves. We then see uh, Khan do this like crazy warm up, you know, yeah. to get to generate his great strength. And this is also a move I've seen Dad jokingly use on more than one occasion. <laughs> Dad, it doesn't work. I don't know what you're doing. Stop okay. But he does manage to slide the electric door open and knock out the guard. And when he like punches the guard, that guard goes flying. He does like a flip, uh, you know, right, like right. all the way. Must have been quite the wallop. Uh, the MacGyver uses the phaser to take over the transporter room from Kyle and beams Con, con aboard his own ship. It's not only amazing to me that MacGyver can somehow know how to use the tr transporter. But that she does it in such a way that it's also undetected by the bridge because right. apparently they don't know that anybody's used that too. So, wow, she's really a jack of all trades. I mean, she's a historian, not a transporter chief. So, obviously, although she may have had some past experience with the transporter, to be able to mask it from the bridge does seem a little questionable is all. Talk about a Mary Sue. <laughs> Uh, he then wakes all uh, uh, all the others aboard the Botany Bay. Now, there was actually more stuff shot on the Botany Bay. Uh, but again, uh, it was cut. But this time, it was cut because the censors didn't appreciate the outfits oh. that the people on the other side were wearing. So uh, they made them cut as uh, much of it as they possibly could. So that's funny. That um, is funny. Yeah. Because in the, in the future, we'll all be nudists, right? Yeah, exactly, apparently. Or in those weird, meshy go-go things. That's what Rod Mary was thinking. <laughs> now we know. That makes more sense. 
Those so, will be uh, optional in our glorious utopian future. <laughs> so uh, Khan wakes everybody up, and then we cut to the bridge. And then uh, suddenly on the bridge, everything starts to fall apart. Everything's inoperable. Nothing is running. Khan is running everything from engineering. Uh-oh. Kirk refuses to give up the bridge. To which Khan says, it's a moot point. Everybody on the bridge will eventually suffocate anyway. Dun, dun, dun. Come, Marshall. Back at it. Captain's log. They have my ship. <laughs> it's pretty much exactly how he said it, too. I loved it. Um, they have my ship. And then he's about to pass out. And he's the last one of all the characters on the bridge. He's the last one to pass out. <sighs> they are now somewhere in the ship where there's a view screen. I think it's the trial thing from the menagerie, but it's hard to say. Uh, Uhura's there and Scotty and Spock and Bones. And they're all being asked by Khan to join him. Oh, and the unnamed Indian crew member is also there as well. Uh, Khan is asking him to join him, but they all refuse. Scott then asks, what happened to the captain? So then uh, Khan forces her to use the, the view screen, but she sits at the view screen and refuses to do it, and then is smacked by one of the, uh, by one of the guards. And then, and then is always smacked. At this guy. What's that? There's at this guy with such intensity. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, she does. And then uh, is almost smacked again until MacGyver steps in to stop it. She's gaining a conscience. What's happening here? On the view screen, then, we see Kirk locked in some kind of pressure chamber because this exists on uh, in the medical bay. Uh, he's about to be suffocated. He asks Spots. Yes. He asks Spock, are you going to join me? Or are you going to let your captain suffocate? And Spock here rightly refuses because let's be honest, people. Like you can't just give up your give up your ship to save your captain. The captain's yeah, willing to go medicine. down with the ship. That way, the few. The many. Yeah, exactly. the few. Or the one. MacGyver then asks to leave, saying that she can't watch what's going to happen. He continues to Khan uh, continues to implore them to join him. They still refuse, and then the picture cuts out. MacGyver shoots the guard. Uh, we see MacGyver now. She shoots the guard with a hypo and releases Kirk. But even still, at this point, she begs him not to kill Khan. Whose side is this lady on? We then see Spock and the guard arrive, and Kirk hides in the corner. He then tries to fight the eugenic, but it's good to know that even, even now, Spock's hand pinch can even take out a product of eugenics. That's right. Lucky thing. Spock then gives him the lowdown. They decide to gas the ship. Inside the, the courtroom, we see the gas start to take over. Bakan runs away. Scotty tries to run after him after punching a guy out. Good to know he can punch out somebody who is a product of the eugenics as well. <laughs> gas is now seeping into the whole ship, except for engineering, where somebody has shut down the line. Kirk runs to meet Khan there. Er, whoa. Kirk runs to mean Khan there. So then we cut to engineering. Khan is sitting at the bay trying to figure out how to overload the ship's thing. And all of a sudden, Spock and Scott are having this announcement over the, the communication grid in engineering. And they tell him that Kirk is coming to engineering. That doesn't seem logical to me at all. Kirk runs in. But Khan is ready there and steals his favor or phaser. He then crumbles it in front of him. Khan then tells us the engines are now set to overload. Kirk sillily tries to stop the controls, but Khan pulls him off. And then there's a weird lot of not Kirk in this episode. In this uh, stunt Kirk, not Kirk, is uh, seen a lot in this episode. Again, we don't have the grainy television that they had back in the day. Maybe it's that would cover it. But and, and the, the other thing we have to consider is the size of the screen. Oh, that's also true. That's true. You know, they had, what, like 12-inch TVs back then? Yeah, so, I mean, to, to go back to Mad Men, right? You, know, you think about that little tiny Mad Men screen. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> watching the Net, uh, show, and you're like, uh, I just see two guys fighting. I, I barely know <laughs> who they are. Yeah, exactly. And it's black and white, so I don't know who's yeah. yellow and who's... Well, they're both in yellow at this point anyway. Oh, no, he's in red at this point, because he's in, like prison gear or whatever he's not in his yellow shirt but yeah so it's the red versus the yellow dun 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 so then uh so uh khan pulls kirk off of the thing and sends it flying and then not kirk does the tumble and he gets back up but it's still not kirk as he goes to attack khan again they scuffle 
We see not Kirk. Then Kirk. Then not Kirk stands again and punches Khan. Then in the close-up, we see Kirk continue to wail on him. Then Khan throws not Kirk up against the controls. Khan raves about his strength and how strong he is. I have five times the strength you do, he says. Meanwhile, Kirk turns the control switch and pulls it out, and it's this weird, like, long, hard bar that he uses then to beat Khan down. Oh, whew, it's all over. Oh, but the music tells us it's not over yet because the beeping, uh, the beeping tells us that the ship could blow at any minute. But luckily, Kirk rushes over and saves the day. Yay! Captain Kirk. The trial is held. Khan and McGever sit. Kirk decides not to put them into reorientation, but instead sends them to City Alpha 5. Can you tame a world? Kirk asks Khan. Khan says, have you read Milton? Kirk smiles and says, I get it. I know that reference. I got it. MacGyver's is then faced with the decision. Does she take the court-martial or does she accompany Khan and his crew? You know it will be a struggle, says Khan. But she agrees to follow Khan, and off they go. Mr. Scott says, I feel bad as a Scotsman. I should know uh, I should know Milton, but I'm not all caught up on it. What did he mean? And Kirk says, well, Satan at one point says, it is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. <laughs> Credits. Oh, Sp I forgot. Spock then says, I wonder what it would be like to go there in 100 years and see what city they have made. Or to which, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. To which Kirk replies, yes, sir, it would. It sure would. It's as almost as if they're setting up the sequel there. That's right. Bum, bum, bum. Credits. Yay. Interesting thing in the credits, by the way, don't know if you noticed this, but her credit uh, is given as Marla. It's not even given as Myla, uh, you know, Marla MacGyver's. It just says Marla. But her name is Marla is never used in the whole show. So that's interesting. Well, let's talk a little bit about the budget here. Because Star Trek once again spent more than its near impossible episode allowance of $185,000. Space Seed, despite being primarily a bottle show, actually cost them $197,000. Most of it's overrun due to the cost of building and photographing the Botany Bay miniature. And the design and the construction of the interior as well. The running deficit on the show is now up to $77,000. What about all those forbidden costumes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They could have saved money there. They weren't able to be on screen anyway. But that's what the future looks like. <laughs> yeah, they keep telling us. It's a, it's all these weird uniforms. Uh, Ricardo Maldobon has said, I thought that the character of Khan was wonderful. He was overly ambitious man that had dimensions. Uh, sometimes when you read a villain, he's just a villain through and through. But this man had facets. He was a genetically engineered man with mental and physical superiority. And it's only natural that he would use that superiority to, uh, and wants to conquer. On the other hand, he falls in love. He takes his girl as his wife when they go into exile. It was a love that was very real. And it humanized the character for me. Yeah, all right, Ricardo. I don't know what you're talking about there, but well, so he uh, has the advantage so. of being able to read the script and imagine stuff, right? Yeah, we've got that's 50, true. We've got 52 minutes from which to extract. Yeah. So, so obviously, Montalban, being a, a good actor, was able to give himself the motivation he needed to to deliver the lines and to have the facial expressions to give you know it's a really good performance. Yeah. It's just that he's got a lot more going on than we're able to see. And what they needed was three or four or five episodes. Right. In P3, right? They need three episodes, one in which we all learn to like Khan, one in which Khan begins to do his um, seduction and turn people against, turn people over to his side, and then the third one with the fight. Yep. And then any other ones would have been gravy. I, you know, it's just in the world we live in today, Right, if they had made that like discovery in which, you know, Mud was a recurring character, uh, yep. you know, much more dynamic and well built, and in which every you know things, things played out over time. I, you know, I just think that an episode like this, you know, so one what my favorite episode, um, Balance, Balance of Terror, terror. Mm -hmm. 
it fits nicely into that 52 minutes. Yeah. You know, you're not you're not wishing that was a three episode arc because it it does nicely with what they've got. But this because characters have to be characters need an arc in this episode, right? Some characters yep. need to go from one place to another by the end and it just happens too quickly. Well, I think the two we uh, find that there are a lot of episodes, you know, in this original series where we're like, if they just would have had more time to flesh out this or to yeah. really like make us understand why this character's doing or this villain is doing this, you know, right. I think we're going to see a lot more. We're going to see a lot of, uh, of, you know, villains who are a lot more one dimensional coming up here. Mm-hmm. And of course, we, what we get in Discovery, which I think really would have benefited you know, this uh, this this episode in particular, but the original series in general, is you have multiple storylines happening at the same time, and stories have the time, you know, to actually you don't have to compress everything into an hour, right? You know, so it, it feels like if they had done Ash, you know, that whole storyline, it would have happened in an hour. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. You you meet the guy. He seems like a nice guy. Whoa! He turns out to be a Klingon. I mean, in a sense, that's the story of trial, uh, the trouble with triples. Right. And uh, you know the way they did it, because he he shows up what like episode five or six or something. Yeah, mud. No, uh, Ash. Oh yeah. Oh sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And you know it. We basically find out almost towards the end. So, like, t- it's it's a ten episode thing. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And so, you know, Khan could have been running around as a you know guy left over from the twentieth century, and only basically at the end of episode two are they figuring out. Wait a minute. I don't think this is, you know, Harmony Smith. You know, nice colony man. I think it. I think it's Khan Noonien Singh. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, that wraps my notes for this episode. How about you? Uh, you got anything else you want to discuss that we haven't gotten to yet? No, I think we uh, covered it pretty nicely. I think so, too, because, you know, a few more years, we're going to actually get to Star Trek 2, and uh, <laughs> I'll be able to talk all sorts of stuff about that for sure. All right. Well, folks, thanks for joining us as always. Next week is A Taste of Armageddon, which, again, is one of those episodes I don't think I've ever seen. But we'll see. Maybe I have. I could be totally confused. But just looking at the episode description, I was like, I don't know if I know which episode this is. So, hey, another fun episode where I'll be like, I don't know what happens (laughs) and how exciting that will be. Uh, So, hey, I'm saying goodbye from Austin. Ken from Houston, why don't you say goodbye, Ken? Live long and prosper. There we go. Perfect. And we will see everybody next week. 